0: Hélas, Madame, celle que j'aime tant, souffrez que soit votre humble serva, votre humble serva. Je serai à toujours, et tant que je vis. Welcome to this series of short podcasts about the stories of the Tudors. My name's Tony Riches, and I'm a historical fiction author from Pembrokeshire in Wales and a specialist in the history of the early Tudors. In the third book of my Tudor trilogy, I wrote about the birth of Arthur Tudor, Prince of Wales, on September the 19th or 20th, 1486, at St Swithin's Priory in Winchester, which was the ancient capital of England. His father Henry the Seventh had achieved one of his most important tasks as king, which was to provide an heir and ensure the future of the Tudors. And when the child was baptized on September the twenty-fourth in the Great Cathedral at Winchester, he was identified uh, with the mythical Camelot and made a knight. And even his chosen name was planned to evoke the heroic figure of King Arthur. Henry's Other priority was to unite the Houses of Lancaster and York, of course, and bring an end to what we now call the Wars of the Roses. Little Arthur, who was half Tudor and half York, became really the living embodiment of the United Houses. When he was three years old, he was made Prince of Wales. And when he was five, which was really quite young, he became a Knight of the Garter. And it's interesting to look at the differences between the traditional view that we have of Prince Arthur and what the records actually tell us. Because Arthur's tutor as a boy was John Reed, who was the former headmaster of Winchester College. But before long, his education was taken over by the rather intriguing um, blind poet Bernard André, and then by Thomas Lineker, who, of course, was Henry VII's own physician. And when you put all those things together, you get quite a, a broad education which covers the sciences and, and the arts and the classics. So it was probably good as you could get at the time. And the records actually show that Arthur's education covered grammar and poetry, rhetoric and ethics. And interestingly, it focused on history, particularly the history of the monarchy. And he seems to have been a really quite able pupil and was described as a superb archer and who could dance, write pleasant and honourably. Now, it's impossible to tell how much of that was flattery to please his father, the king, and how much of it was first-hand observation. But it's interesting to contrast this superb archer with the notion we have of Prince Arthur as a dull and scholarly character. And also, he's often described as sickly and weak, and... Frankly, I found no evidence in all the research that I did of any mention of Arthur being ill during his lifetime, except, of course, in his last moments, last few weeks. And like his maternal grandfather, he was unusually tall for his age and really, I suppose, quite handsome by the standards of the time. And there's an interesting report by the Spanish ambassador that describes Arthur as having reddish hair, small eyes, I don't think that's meant to be a compliment, a high-bridged nose, and uh, resembling his brother Henry. Arthur was also described as having an amiable and gentle personality. And in 4088-89, Henry negotiated what we call the Treaty of Medina del Campo with Spain, which included the proposal that Arthur would be married to Catherine of Aragon, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And in May 1490, uh, young Arthur was created warden of all the marches towards Scotland. And in, Interestingly, in October 1492, when his father Henry travelled to France, Arthur was named Keeper of England and the King's Lieutenant. So he was being prepared for to one day take over as king. And in 1496, the agreement was finally reached that Catherine would come to England in 1500 when Arthur would be 14. Uh, Catherine was delayed by terrible storms and had to have two attempts to actually arrive in England, but she did so in October 1501. And after years of negotiation, Arthur's marriage to Catherine finally took place um, it's actually uh, 517 years ago this week as, when I was recording this podcast on the 14th of November 1501 in St Paul's Cathedral London and this was a spectacular wedding ceremony which sparked um, a really a chain of events that would change the face of England forever I'd now like to play a short extract from the audiobook edition of Henry book three of the Tudor trilogy narrated by James Young which uh, describes some of these momentous events.
1: On a bright cold November morning Princess Catherine left the Bishop's Palace. A rosy-cheeked Prince Harry dressed in silver embroidered with gold roses walked at her side. Catherine looked magnificent in a white satin gown, embroidered with a thousand pearls and pleated with gold thread in the Spanish style. A white silk veil, bordered with gold and precious stones, covered her face. Henry had stayed the night at the well-appointed house of Lord Abergavenny, close to St Paul's Cathedral. On the morning of the wedding, he rode in front of the procession on a white charger, wearing a silver breastplate studded with diamonds and rubies over his red velvet robes. Behind him, in an open carriage pulled by four fine horses, rode Elizabeth with Princess Catherine. Elizabeth wore a gown of white satin with a long train of royal purple silk. In keeping with tradition, Henry joined Elizabeth in a private room of the cathedral to watch the wedding ceremony from behind lattice windows. He took her hand in his. I can hardly believe this day has come. She smiled to see him happy at last. Once they are married, you must not leave them in that damp castle in Ludlow. Bring them to court, Henry. I have started trying to help Princess Catherine understand our ways, and it will be good for Arthur to learn how to rule. I plan they should make Ludlow Castle their home, Elizabeth. Arthur will learn to command the Welsh marches. It is good for him to have the responsibility. Elizabeth looked doubtful. Do you remember yourself at this age, Henry? he smiled. Don't be concerned about Arthur. I have appointed Sir Richard Pole as his administrator, and we shall have them come to London as often as they are able to. The waiting crowds cheered as a deafening fanfare from the King's trumpeters announced the arrival of the Princess at the Galilee Porch. Prince Harry escorted Catherine through the west door of the cathedral, along a raised wooden walkway covered with red carpet, which led from the door to the altar. They walked down the long nave between pillars hung with the colourful standards of the great families of England. Fifteen-year-old Prince Arthur waited at the altar on a raised wooden stage. Dressed in white satin, he stood with the new Archbishop of Canterbury, Henry Dean, surrounded by another nineteen other bishops, the Spanish legate and their attendants, all dressed in rich silks and cloth of gold. The ceremony and mass lasted for three hours before the newlyweds knelt to be blessed by Henry and Elizabeth. Princess Catherine and Prince Arthur returned to the west door to be greeted by a pageant representing King Arthur, flanked by the kings of Spain and France, all dressed in full armour. Trumpets blasted fanfares as the crowds shouted, Long live Prince Arthur and long live King Henry! The entire wedding party made their way to Lambeth Palace, for the grand banquet served on gold plates, which were decorated with precious jewels. As she had done with each christening, Lady Margaret organised every detail of the young couple's first official night together. Henry applauded with the others as Prince Arthur was led in a grand procession of laughing young nobles, some already drunk, into his bride's bedroom. The princess waited for him in their nuptial bed, where she was prepared by her ladies and blessed in readiness. Doña Elvira, her governess, had been tasked by Queen Isabella to ensure the consummation of her marriage observed the proper tradition. Henry turned to Elizabeth. Our son is made a man at last, he raised his goblet of wine. Here's to the next generation of Tudors.
0: After the wedding, Arthur and Catherine went to Ludlow Castle on the Welsh border to set up their household and administer what was described as indifferent justice to the rude Welshmen of the area. And in March of 1502, Arthur fell suddenly ill, and um, experts disagree, but I believe it was of the dreaded sweating sickness, which is what we would today call a flu pandemic. Uh, the records show that this was actually raging through the Ludlow area and taking, in some families, nearly half young and old, rich and poor. And Arthur died on April the 2nd. He was only 15 years old, and the shock of his death seemed to change his father, Henry Tudor, uh, sapping his spirit. And Arthur was buried in Worcester Cathedral. The Chantry Chapel created for him is is still there. And in 2002, archaeologists used um, GPR ground-penetrating radar to find Prince Arthur's tomb in the cathedral. It was several feet below the tomb chest that was built there several years after his death. And some historians propose that there is evidence of foul play in Arthur's sudden death. But it's important to remember how they had no way of dealing with the sweating sickness. And, for example, in London, it took two Lord Mayors and six high-ranking aldermen in little more than a week. So uh, it didn't matter how wealthy you were. Uh, there was no way of really treating it. Um, It's not commonly known that 16 year old Catherine was also struck down by the same illness, which um, the symptoms do sound like sweating sweating sickness. And she herself came quite close to death, but she was quite strong and was lucky to survive. After only five months of marriage, she was left a young widow in a foreign country. She had her Spanish ladies-in-waiting around her, but they were more of a hindrance than a help, I believe. And her whole future looked quite uncertain. She'd arrived in England to become queen one day. And of course, if she proved to be pregnant, then that would change everything. Um, Otherwise... Uh, poor Henry Tudor might have to, not only had he lost his his son, but he might have to return the significant dowry that he'd fought so hard to win. And it could also jeopardise the peace treaty with Spain that he'd battled to secure. And in a clever move, which is typical of him, Henry proposed that his surviving son, then aged 10, Uh, and now heir to the throne, would someday marry Catherine. It wasn't very specific, uh, but it's documented as a a proposal. Now, the question of whether or not Arthur and his bride ever consummated their marriage is one of the great uh, medieval mysteries, of course. And it became crucial when Catherine's second husband, Henry VIII, Uh, wanted to have their union annulled. And um, I'm going to be talking about Catherine's life in the next podcast, but just very briefly, um, I think most people are aware that she absolutely insisted that she remained a virgin at Arthur's death. And against this, there are all sorts of accounts. Um, The famous one is of Arthur greeting his friends on the morning after his wedding night, And it said that he emerged from his chamber and told his servant, Anthony Willoughby, uh, Willoughby, bring me a cup of ale, for I have been this night in the midst of Spain. And to uh, others that were around, he said things like, Masters, it's a good pastime to have a wife. Uh, Thomas Grey, Marcus of Dorset, uh, he had his own axe to grind, of course, but he testified to the court to seeing Catherine waiting for Arthur underneath the bedclothes and um, commented on how healthy Arthur seemed um, with a good and sanguine complexion the next day and Willoughby believed Arthur and Catherine had definitely laid together as man and wife at Ludlow and um, Sir William Thomas who was a groom of the prince's privy chamber so one of the people that would really know the answer, said that he'd escorted Arthur to Catherine's room and collected him again in the morning many times. Even Catherine admitted that Arthur came to her bedchamber, but she said it was only seven times, as if that wasn't enough for them to have consummated their marriage. But of course, only Catherine and Arthur would have known what went on behind the closed bedroom door and if it wasn't consummated then they weren't married under the canon law of the time I've always wondered if this was Catherine's great secret but then on the other hand uh, she lived a very devout life there's no question of that she was a extremely pious woman she swore on the sacrament to a papal legate that Um, she was a virgin and it had been unconsummated and she knew the consequences of lying about such a thing it would be a a sin which would damn her soul to hell for all eternity and possibly jeopardize her her parents uh, their reputation and their rule in Spain so there was a lot at stake and even not taking into account uh, Henry VIII's wishes. And her whole future depended on convincing the world that she remained a virgin. And in her famous Blackfriars speech, it's known as these days, the, the hearings that were held at Blackfriars, it's recorded that she turned to King Henry, who was kind of acting as judge and jury, and and looked him straight in the eye and said uh, when you had me at first I take God to be my judge I was a true maid without touch of man and whether it be true or no I put it to your conscience and I I believe that the key person in this medieval mystery is Donna Elvira who's Catherine's Spanish Duana who was tasked To look after Catherine's and Spain's interest by Ferdinand and Isabella Catherine's parents and there's evidence that Catherine was definitely guided by Donna Elvira in all things and Elvira had been chosen uh, because of her assertive character and her persuasive and political skills and I I think she could have easily Persuaded, well, perhaps not easily, but she could possibly have persuaded Catherine that it was her duty to forget the truth. And it's one of these things: if you um, say the the lie often enough, you could believe it was true, perhaps. Anyway, I plan to explore all of this further in my next podcast about the life of Catherine of Aragon. The Tudor trilogy is available from Amazon and all links to my books can be found on my website at tonyrichs.com thank you for listening <inaudible> Seré à ah, toujours étant le jeu.